welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Well, our topic this morning is on the coming of Elijah. And that's really an intriguing thought, isn't it? That God has promised to send a message like Elijah brought to the time and the place of his day. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, as we study this promise that you are going to send an Elijah, a message like Elijah's, uh, that we may pray for it and that we may earnestly seek it for our lives as well as the lives of your people, that it may water the seed of truth, the gospel, and prepare a people for Jesus' coming. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Do you remember Elijah? He was a man who single-handedly confronted uh, this apostate king by the name of Ahab and his wicked queen Jezebel. It was during a time of very gross apostasy in the church of his day. They had fallen into Baal worship. And when the nation's rulers tried to kill Elijah, he had to hide out in an unknown spot uh, by the brook Cherith. And later, as a guest of a widow in the heathen land of Sidon, uh, he was taken care of in, and, and uh, get provided food and shelter from persecution in her home. Well, we're told that Elijah is not dead. Elijah is living right now because he was translated without seeing death, wasn't he? Bible tells us that, and he is a representative of those living today, dare I say, us, who will welcome Jesus at his second coming in glory and will not die, but see him come with our own eyes without going into the grave and coming up in the resurrection. So we must read this great promise that God has given us in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 again, noting it carefully. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Why hasn't God fulfilled this promise yet? What is Elijah going to do when he comes? Why has God chosen to send him rather than, say, Enoch, who was also translated without seeing death? You know, in all of the 6,000 years of human history, only these two people, Elijah and Enoch, have escaped the ravages of death. Enoch was translated, you remember, before the flood of Noah. Obviously, he has had a lot more experience watching things happening on this earth than Elijah has. Elijah 
must be someone then who is very special, for he was chosen to accompany the resurrected Moses to visit with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Matthew chapter 17. And Elijah encouraged Jesus as he faced the horror of his cross. Elijah, yes, he right now is a living human being, never tasted death, and he must right now possess a glorified human body. Where is Elijah in all of the universe? Well, no one knows exactly, geographically. Is Elijah being forced, maybe, to hide out in some modern Brook Cherith or as a guest of some foreign widow of Zarephath who is outside Israel? You remember when Ahab and Jezebel tried to kill him and Elijah, or Elijah found a refuge in Sidon. And Jesus cited that fact to the acute embarrassment and anger of the true church of his day. Look at it in Luke chapter 4 and verse 26. When Jesus cited this to them, it just set them off. It made them angry, these words that Jesus said. Luke 4 verse 26 says, Jesus is saying, I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all of the land but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, the heathen woman, in the region of Sidon, which was a pagan land. And then it says in verse 28, 28, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Now, what set them off? This promise of sending Elijah is sure. Jesus has promised, I will come again. Amen? He has promised he's going to visit this earth a second time. Do we believe that? That's why we are Seventh-day Adventists. We believe Jesus has promised to visit the earth a second time. Do we believe this promise of God sending us Elijah too? Do we believe that as we believe in his promise to come the second time. You know, the sending of this Elijah message is the next great event on the divine calendar. And God's people need to be aware of it and to uh, so pray for it. We make much of the terrible things that are coming upon the earth of religious persecution, for example, and we publish things that are happening in the realm of church and state in the Liberty magazine, which is very good. But do we have a magazine that is devoted to Elijah's work and Elijah's message? Because that is what God has promised to his people. And that is what is their desperate need. And actually, Elijah is good news. Elijah is good news because, very obviously, he encourages uh, our children. Are you as parents, do you want a message from God that will encourage your children? 
Elijah is sent with a message to encourage our children, whereas the frightening political and world situation, I don't know about you, every time I turn on the radio or the television, it's bad news. The economy is bad news, and the world relations of the nations is bad news. Dear friends, God never sends bad news. He sends good news. And that's what the world needs to hear, the good news from God. God wants us to understand a new covenant motivation to replace the bad news of our time-honored old covenant motivation, which is fear. You know, we so often serve God out of fear, don't we? Because we don't want to go to hell. And we want to gain some heavenly real estate. But God has some good news in his new covenant of a better motivation than that. And that is the constraining love of Christ who died for us and our sins upon the cross. Now, it is the common perception that some have of Elijah that he was just a fire and brimstone preacher and reformer who specialized in chopping off the heads of religious leaders with whom he disagreed, that is, those prophets of Baal. But that is not a balanced view of Elijah's ministry. True, he arranged for 450 of those prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel to be taken down to the brook Kishon for that to be done to them. And the Lord may appoint Elijah to do the equivalent to modern prophets of Baal, But that is not the primary work that Elijah will be sent to do. Note, it says in Malachi that he will turn the hearts of fathers and children. And you know that will require the turning of marital hearts too. Elijah's message of turning hearts is a message for your home and my home. That's what we call reconciliation, amen? And reconciliation is the same thing as atonement, making two to be one. And according to the prophecy of Daniel 8.14, we are living in the great antitypical day of atonement which comes just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In fact, today is that day. Today is a special time of reconciliation, turning hearts to each other. Therefore, it becomes clear that Elijah's work and message will be found in the unique remnant church truth of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary because that has to do with the reconciliation of hearts and the atonement. And you know, we know that the bulk of God's true people are still in Babylon. The bulk of them are there. Now, there are modern Obadiahs who keep them alive with a little famine, food, and water, and we too easily forget that the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 are primarily directed to the Sunday-keeping churches. That's where the bulk of God's people are still to be found. Now let's go back and rehearse familiar facts about the original story of Elijah to get 
the setting so that we can understand Elijah's message for us today. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, 1 Kings 17 verse 1, Elijah just appears out of nowhere, and he's not even designated there as a prophet or evidence. There's no evidence there even that God sent him. He just suddenly crashes into the king's gate. He startles the king at his desk with the news that no more rain is going to fall until he agrees for it to come, except at my word, he says. Now face it, that sounds arrogant. He doesn't say, until the Lord agrees for rain to fall, he says, at my word. And shocking as it is, Elijah has taken over the administration of the Lord's work in Israel. And God has entrusted enormous personal responsibility to Elijah, including that of the elements. Now, Elijah is a forerunner of that group of overcoming people in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, to whom Jesus says that he will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. So just as God gave executive authority to Elijah, so he will give executive authority to those who overcome, even as Christ overcame in the finishing of his work on this earth. Elijah will have some important part to have from now on in finishing God's work. James, who wrote the book by his name in the New Testament, does not say that this drought that came upon Israel at the pronouncement of Elijah was primarily the will of God. Rather, James tells us it was God's answer to the initiative of Elijah's prayer. Look at James 5, verse 17. Elijah, it says, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months, and he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. God responded to the prayer of Ahab here, or pardon me, of Elijah. Now, Ahab, Ahab, when a guy comes in and says there's not going to be any more rain, you had better send your soldiers out real quick and catch this man before he gets away. He has your kingdom in a throttle hold in the palm of his hand. But Elijah did get away, and we follow him as he takes refuge at a little tributary of the Jordan River where the ravens brought him gourmet meals, probably swiped from the table of Ahab. But even providential waters dried up, and Elijah was then directed to pagan Sidon because, and this was to the shame of God's people, There wasn't, according to Jesus, a widow in Israel who had the faith or the nerve of this believing pagan lady to give sanctuary to Elijah in Zarephath. There wasn't anyone in Israel to be found, any women there of faith who could stand up against such persecution. After the famine had sobered up, even Ahab and Jezebel... Elijah suddenly confronts Obadiah. 
The king slinks humiliated to meet him. The appointment is made to call the people to Mount Carmel. And Elijah taunts the Baal preachers and demands that they demonstrate before the crowd the lie that their imported Baal worship is. And he prays a prayer that gives a clue as to what modern Elijah's will do when he comes again. You find it in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 37. Here is part of Elijah's prayer. He says, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Did you catch that? Did you catch it? Turning hearts is Elijah's main concern. Turning hearts. And that will be Elijah's work, his message for the church and for the world when he comes just before the second coming of Jesus. And we know that turning alienated hearts in atonement, at one is something that only the message of Christ's cross can accomplish. Only the cross can turn hearts to God and to one another. And therefore it follows that the Elijah message will be an uplifting of Christ and him crucified. Jesus says something parallel to that sending of Elijah in John chapter 12, verse 31. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And so, as a good evangelist, the apostle Paul caught the idea This, at last, dear friends, is real evangelism. Lifting up the cross of Christ. It includes the facts, the truth, but it turns hearts, and the cross turns hearts. The love of Christ turns hearts. Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul turned this world upside down with that message. And from this, we can conclude that the message of that angel in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1, which lightens the earth with God's glory, his character, his love, God's last message to this earth will not be a message that motivates out of fear. It will not be God's some kind of brand of terrorism. Amen? God does not have a message of terrorism and fear for people in the last days. Wherever and whoever Elijah is, he is not a spiritual Osama bin Laden scaring people into conversion. He is pleading as an ambassador of Christ. We implore you, be reconciled to God. 
Paul wrote. And what is the message that he bears? What Christ accomplished on his cross. For he, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he, that is the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You have to ask yourself the question, what was the fundamental problem of the true church of Elijah's day, which was Israel? What was the fundamental problem there? It's something that's called Baal worship, right? Baal worship. And we're inclined to think that those people back there, they must have been just so stupid and confused, uh, such apparently clumsy counterfeit as Baal for God, who is a true God. How in the world could they fall for such silliness? But we need to realize that it was extremely sophisticated and subtle. Don't kid yourself into thinking that you are too smart to be misled by modern Baalism. Don't kid yourself. Almost everybody in that day got swept away by it, including the elite of the church. Is there anything such a thing as Baal worship today that presents itself as a challenge to us, just as it did to ancient Israel? The Lord's servant has some very serious insight for us to contemplate here. And it's a time of serious crisis that we're living in right now in the Lord's work. You know, I've said this before, but the devil would like to give his knockout punch to his people right now and postpone Jesus' second visit permanently. And he can do that by stamping out God's people on this earth. And he is having his way quite successfully. But the servant of the Lord says this in testimonies to ministers regarding this, and this statement was made in 1890 on page 467. Contemplate it. Infidelity has been making its roads, inroads into our ranks, for it is the fashion to depart from Christ and give place to skepticism. With many, the cry of the heart has been, we will not have this man to reign over us. Baal, Baal is the choice. The religion of many among us will be the religion of apostate Israel because they love their own way and forsake the way of the Lord. That's Baal worship. They love their own way. The true religion, the only religion of the Bible that teaches forgiveness only through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior that advocates righteousness by the faith of the Son of God has been slighted, spoken against, ridiculed, and rejected. That statement was made in 1890, and that date gives us a startling context that the 1888 message of Christ's righteousness, which was kept in a great degree uh, rejected and kept away from the world by our own brethren, she saw that that was making, Baal worship was making inroads into the church of that day in 1890 because of the rejection of this message of righteousness by faith. What happened when the latter rain and the loud cry had to be withdrawn 
She explains, By exciting that opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. The enemy prevented them from obtaining that efficiency which might have been theirs in carrying the truth to the world as the apostles proclaimed it after the day of Pentecost. The light that is to lighten the whole earth with its glory was resisted and by the action of our own brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. Volume 1 of Selected Messages, page 234. Well, the crisis that Elijah faced in Israel, it was terrible. Terrible. And we need to grasp how exceedingly clever was this counterfeit of Baal worship because almost the entirety of Israel was deceived. The word Baal, very common word in, that, in those days, the, in ancient terminology, the husband was the master or the Baal of the wife who was dependent on him for her whole livelihood and over whom he had total authority. Baal then was simply the everyday word for Lord. And the people used it for God just as today. We use the word Lord. They were actually afraid to pronounce the sacred name which even today, we're not sure how it's pronounced, this word Jehovah that's translated in the King James Version. And so they just simply called Jehovah Baal, or Lord. The Bible describes three aspects of Baal worship. And Ellen White says that it took the people about a century to go down this slippery slope into Baal worship of confusion, to descend into Baal worship in Ahab's and Jezebel's day. Number one, it's characterized by an unconscious apostasy. Unconscious apostasy. It's like the frog in the kettle. Heard that story? You know, you put a frog in, the, in a pot of water, and you set it on the stove, and you turn up the heat, and the frog is real comfortable in this water and it's getting warmer and he's even getting more comfortable because he likes warm water, not cold water. And before he knows it, he's cooked. It was an unconscious apostasy. For you see, after Israel fell, the southern kingdom of Judah also became infatuated with it and Jeremiah remonstrates with them. Jeremiah chapter 23, he says, he asks a probing question of Israel. He says, how can you say, I am not polluted? How can you say that? How can you say, I have not gone after the Baals? Jeremiah says, see? See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. It was unconscious apostasy. They were unconscious of their falling away as is modern Laodicea of ours to whom the Lord Jesus says, to our genuine sincerity, you do not know your true condition before God, before the world, before the universe. Look at it in Revelation 3.17. 
The second thing that characterizes Baal worship is that it was subtly combined with the true worship of the Lord in his Jerusalem temple. Yes. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 7, verse 30, that the children of Judah have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name to pollute it. The third thing that characterizes Baal worship is to make bad become worse, this Baal worship was promoted by the very priests who were ordained to lead the people into the worship of the true God. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 23, verse 11, that both priest, pardon me, prophet and priest are profane. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Profaneness has gone out into all the land. A simple definition of Baal worship, both ancient and contemporary, is this. The worship of self, which is disguised as the worship of Christ. It's the assimilation of the thinking of the nations around us in modern Babylon. It is accepting very cleverly packaged ideas, theological, and forms and ways of doing things in our worship of God and our service for God, the ways of Babylon. And the only remedy... The only remedy for it is the crucifixion of self with Christ. It's the only remedy. And forsake our ways for the ways of the Lord. The only remedy. The turning of hearts to God. But that in turn becomes possible only as we understand what happened on the cross. And this is why Babylon just can't grasp it due to their embracing the pagan papal doctrine of the natural immortality of the human soul. We say it very humbly. No church on earth can proclaim what happened to Jesus on the cross as can Seventh-day Adventists because we believe that when a person dies, they go to the grave. And it is not the door to immortality. Death is our enemy. And this is said with deep respect to Sunday-keeping popular churches that their understanding of the immortality of the soul has blinded them to what Jesus died on the cross. They think he took a nice restful holiday over the weekend and went to preaching and evangelism to subterranean souls and didn't really die. And if Jesus didn't really die for our sins on the cross, then the whole thing was a good acting job. But I could never believe in a God like that, could you? Is there biblical evidence that Elijah understood and preached the grace of God? Did Elijah understand righteousness by faith? Or was he just some kind of stern, hard, lacking compassion, fire and brimstone kind of preacher? Well, we know that God sent him. And God is love. God is agape. His message, Elijah's message, was preeminently, as we've said, reconciliation of alienated hearts in the home, in marriage, as well as in their national life. And I'll tell you, that took grace unlimited. Grace unlimited. 
He had a prayer on Mount Carmel. It was very calm, simple, heartfelt, gracious. And we're told in 1 Kings 18, verse 37, that the people's hearts was turned back again. They heard the message and their hearts were turned back again. And what did it was God's acceptance of the blood sacrifice that clearly prefigured Christ's sacrifice on on his cross. And it's not too much to say that Elijah preached to the nation a great sermon on the cross, the message of the cross of Christ. Not too much to say. That's the message that turned hearts. And the people responded and they believed, and they humbled their hearts before this divine revelation of the abounding grace and the forgiveness of God. But the priests of Baal, they hardened their hearts against it, and in hopeless rejection, they would have crucified Christ a thousand times over had they been given an opportunity, and this demonstration was in miniature the judgment at the end of the millennium. To execute the priests of Baal was the people's own vote, their choice. It was their unanimous will. It was clear that their sin of rejecting the message of the cross was the unpardonable sin. What was the fruit of Elijah's ministry? Genuine reformation and revival. And God translated him. That's pretty good evidence of a gospel preacher of grace, wouldn't you say? Pretty good evidence. If at the time of the tsunami, someone knowledgeable about its coming had yelled and screamed at you from the top of the cliff, run for your life, run for higher ground, would you have said, stay put, I'm going to continue sunning myself? He's saying this to me, and he doesn't have a nice, sweet, calm voice. And I don't like the way he's saying it. There are times when love, agape, screams at you. There are times. Who is Elijah today? Where is he? God honored the faith of the honest Jews of Christ's day and sent them Elijah. Do you know that? God sent them Elijah in fulfillment of Malachi's promise because They sincerely expected that the coming of their Messiah would be the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. Even the disciples wondered, who, where is their Elijah? Jesus told them, he's already come in the person of who? John the Baptist. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there is not one risen greater than John the Baptist, And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. But John's day was not the great and dreadful day of the Lord, right? No. That day is now. We're living in the times just before it. Therefore, we may expect Elijah to come as a message in the same way that John's message was the fulfillment of Malachi's promise. The message to come is going to be a shaking message that will slay the modern prophets of Baal. Elijah won't need to decapitate anyone. 
each prophet of Baal is going to create his own disappearing act. Here it is. Review and Herald, March 19, 1895. There will be a winnowing, refining process in every church, for there are among us wicked men who do not love the truth or honor God. Volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 332. We are in the shaking time, the time when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Evangelism 360. In the absence of persecution, there have drifted into our ranks men who appear sound and their Christianity unquestionable, but who, if persecution should arise, would go out from us. Manuscript 64, 1898. Those who continue to counterwork the work of God would have accomplished will be purged out, for God accepts the service of no man whose interest is divided. Sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 400. Those who have had great light and precious privileges, but who have not improved them, will, under one pretext or another, go out from us. Prophets and Kings, page 188. Many a star that we have admired for its brilliance will then go out in darkness. Review and Herald, September 11, 1888. Frequent will be the apostasies of men who have occupied responsible positions. Third volume of Selected Messages, page 385. The great issue so near at hand will weed out those whom God has not appointed, and he will have a pure, true, sanctified ministry prepared for the latter reign. Elijah is going to proclaim, dear friends, nothing but positive good news truth. We can expect that message that's been promised to us. It will be the best good news the world or the church has ever heard. And how can you tell the difference between the genuine Elijah message that God sends and the clever counterfeit? When God fulfills his promise to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord, there will be certain evidences. First, the message, you can be sure, will be as unpopular as Elijah's message was in his day. The news of what Elijah said to King Ahab about no rain flew throughout the kingdom like the word goes out throughout the web today. Many far and near will condemn it, while at the same time the message will go far and near. The message will be uncomfortable to those who love sin and worldliness because it will be inspired by a visitor, the Holy Spirit, whose first work is to convict of sin. Third, Elijah's message will proclaim full religious liberty. To those in Israel who wanted to worship Baal, Elijah gave the ultimate in opportunity. He risked his life, Elijah did, on Mount Carmel. He invited the 450 prophets of Baal to do their own thing before everybody. Gave them full access to every advantage of the media that the day could afford. It was a full, unhindered, 
demonstration of Baal worship, right? It follows that in the last days, the true Christ will give full liberty to do Baal, to let Baal do his thing today. Publicity, swollen budgets, media access. Let the people have a big dose of the Baal message so that they can get sick of it on their own. There might even be something to that proportion of 450 Baal prophets to one. When the final showdown comes, as it was on Mount Carmel, we read that when the storm at last begins to blow, multitudes of what we have thought were true disciples will be like dry leaves, like in Jesus' day when many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Elijah will have a positive message, just as he had on Mount Carmel. He didn't spend his precious time railing against Baal worship, but he rebuilt the broken-down altar of the true God for its worship, and he called on the people to see what happens when his worship is restored. And the fruit of Elijah's message, a national repentance. A national repentance. For we read in 1 Kings 18, 39, that when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. Just as in John the Baptist fulfillment of the Elijah message, so the message that comes before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord will make ready a people prepared for the coming of Jesus. It appears that the third angel's message in verity and the Elijah message are one and the same, repentance permeating the body of Christ, repentance. His message will be the third angel's message in verity. It will be a clearer concept of the everlasting gospel since Pentecost's message. The Protestant reformers of the 19th century understood justification by faith clearly for their time, but they, including John Wesley, lived too soon to grasp the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary truth of the Day of Atonement. Even Ellen Harmon failed to grasp it until after the great disappointment of October 22, 1844. And when she came to age of her 60s, she eagerly welcomed a message that brought, was brought, God sent a trial balloon through the Holy Spirit to, through two young men, Jones and Wagner, where Jesus was proposing his love to his bride to see how that would be received. And then with the purpose of sending them more light and more power of the Holy Spirit to finish the gospel work throughout the world. And when she came to her 60s, she eagerly welcomed the message that was brought by these two young men to the General Conference at Minneapolis in 1888 that brought a more clear understanding of justification by faith, the beginning of the loud cry of Revelation chapter 18. And she exclaimed with enthusiasm that it is the initial showers of heaven of the latter rain it was, the la- it was the Elijah message, which 
we read earlier from selected messages 234 that was rejected by so many of our leading men and the Holy Spirit was insulted. She says that it was insulted. And God has a message of repentance today for his people. You know what corporate repentance is? It's not the church making a proclamation. Okay, now everybody repent now. Okay? Everybody repent. Just repent. You like being told what to do? Nobody likes being told what to do, even if it is from the hierarchy. <laughs> but if the Holy Spirit indicts your heart with the love of Christ and what he died for you, for your, went through on the cross to die for your sins, the Holy Spirit can indict your heart to repent, can it not? If the Holy Spirit can do that for one, he can do that for every individual in the body of Christ, and that would be corporate repentance, wouldn't it? And furthermore, corporate repentance is the understanding that flesh is flesh, and all flesh is the same flesh. And I don't know about you, but I was born into a world with flesh that is flesh of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? And so every sin that exists out there in the world in the past, present, and future is potentially my sin because I have the same flesh that those folks had when they committed those sins. And I'm no better than they are, but for the grace of God. And so if I had been there in that great gathering in 1888 and God had sent a message proposing his love to his church, I would have inclined to reject it too because my flesh was their flesh. But that same attitude is perpetuated even to this day in the corporate church. And hence, Jesus appeals to us to realize what we don't know about ourselves, that we have flesh, and we need to repent for that ongoing resistance of Jesus' proposal of love to us. And I believe that what Jesus said there of Laodicea, where he appeals to her to repent, I believe that Jesus has faith that Laodicea will repent of her sin and that she will gain the victory through the avenue of repentance and seeing the cross and that God's church will go through the large core of them. Those that are shaken out by their own choice will decapitate themselves and kind of, you know, go into the woodwork, as, it's, as it were. But God's people will triumph, and the bulk of God's people are still in Babylon, and they're going to hear that wonderful message of the cross and come join those that are holding the banner of the third angel's message. So do not lose hope in God's church. Jesus believes in it. Well, let's say this. Jesus looks at humanity and he looks at his church and as sinners as we are, he has no hope in us whatsoever because we are sinners and no one seeks after God. All right? But he has hope in his church because he knows the power of his gospel can turn hearts. And therefore, he believes through the power of his gospel that their hearts can be turned to him. 
and therefore he has faith in his people. Amen? Amen. If we have spoken too plainly this morning, please forgive your erring servant because I am a sinner. And maybe I believe too passionately. But I believe that Jesus wanted to come yesterday. And the only reason why he didn't come yesterday, and 150 years is too long delay, don't you think? And I certainly don't want to blame Jesus for the postponing of his second coming. I'd rather take that credit myself, that I'm the reason why he's delayed. It's because of his mercy toward me and toward the world. May God bless your heart. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, we have heard your message of Elijah this morning, one of the turning of our hearts. And as we see more and more the depth of the message of the cross and what that Jesus literally went through hell when he died for us on the cross, he gave up the hope of a resurrection from the dead. He permanently, by his own choice, set his divinity into a state of inactivity. And he accepted eternal separation from his father as the sin bearer. When we realize the message of the cross, our hearts are moved by that love because he gives that gift to every one of us. And no longer are we constrained out of fear motivations, but out of the love of Christ. And so, Lord, I repent of my sin, of my hard-heartedness, of my overreaching. I pray that you will shower a message of repentance upon my people here in Hayward, a turning of hearts, of broken homes, of broken marriages. Give a, a message of reconciliation and healing. And I pray that you will please send Elijah and his message to your world church. Oh, Lord, our desperate need is to have the Elijah message, and our desperate need is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is our prayer in the Savior's name. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.